there are only a few more weeks of the story uh, message series that we've been preaching through the Bible all year. It's, I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. Reading through the Bible as a church, preaching through the Bible as a church, it's just good stuff, all right? I want to begin with a confession. We're going to make a confession, okay? Guys, listen. Guys have the tendency to be too cool, all right? So guys, you're on the spot. I want, like, wives are sitting next to them. Get the elbows ready. If they don't participate, right in the ribs, okay? Guys, how many of you have written a love letter? Let me see your hand. You, you've written love letters. All right. Look at all those hands. Okay. Uh, some of you might have gotten in trouble. I hope the love letter was to your wife. That's, that's a, that's a um, yeah, anyway, we'll move on. Next question. How many of you, in spite of all those love letters would ri- uh, that you've written, would say, I write them, but I'm not very good at it. Would anybody, anybody join me? Yes. We write them, but we're not very good at it. I, I have written a love letter or two in my day. I don't think I'm very good at it. Um, for those of you who know me, you, you can't help but just grin. I can see you. You have these grins from ear to ear. Like back there, Eric Porter has got this huge grin of the thought of me writing a love letter. It's just, it, it, it's a funny thing. This morning, we're going to talk about love. And we're going to talk about love through the book of Romans. But first, I want to remind us and kind of set the stage. I want to take us back uh, about 31 years ago. The popular love anthem of the day. Let me read it to you. It went something like this. It says, you must understand, though the touch of your hand makes my pulse react, that it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. Because what's love got to do? Got to do with it, right? Anyway, that's as close as you'll get to me to singing ever, right there. The truth is, I, 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 I had this guess that Lee Culbertson would be able to do an amazing Tina Turner, but I spared us all from that. I, I want you to think through what's being said here. Tina Turner goes on and says, but what's love but a second-hand emotion? That was the most popular song 31 years ago. Think about that. What's love got to do with it? Well, before you can even answer that question, you have to understand you need a root definition of love, and she gave us ours. Hers was love was a second-hand emotion, But Scripture teaches us love is anything but that. It is so much more than that. We need to figure out what that is. We we understand that love is abstract. It means you can't quite just touch it like a concrete wall and say, there it is. Although it's abstract, though, we also know that love is an absolute reality. In other words, it is a truth. It is set. It is defined. It is fixed. It is defined by something beyond us, beyond our circumstances. Listen, neither the giver of love or the recipient of love gets to define what love is. By the way, that's kind of, that's kind of the downfall even of the love language premise, that love is defined by the recipient. Love is not defined by the recipient, nor is love defined by the giver. Listen, love is defined by something beyond us. 
It is fixed. It is absolute. And so, if we are to think and to try to define what love is, and if we are to give in to the idea that love is an absolute reality that's beyond us, how will we know what it is? How will it be determined? How will it be revealed to us? And the most amazing thing is God has revealed to us what love is. A famous poet around 1930 kind of coined the, the infamous line. He said, If I know what love is, it is because of you. If I know what love is, it is because of you. Isn't that incredibly romantic? Something that romantic never found its way into my love letters. I just, mine was like, you know, it was just bad. I'm not going to give you an example. That would be horrible. If I know what love is, it is because of you. Now, there's a great truth to that, but before we get to the truth, let's talk about the weakness. When he's writing that, he's talking about someone else. And someone else can show us a glimpse of love, they can show us an experience of love, and they can even be a manifestation of love, and we'll talk about all that in just a minute. But we know love because of who God is. This is how we know love. It's not quite as romantic, but it's much more theologically sound. Quick quick rabbit, by the way. Sometimes we throw around the word like theology, like, Somehow it's this big academic thing that's beyond us, and it's just for those other people, and it's not really relevant. Theology is simply the study of God. Now, we can chase the study of God beyond what he's intended it to be and go out into the weeds, sure. But we all ought to want to be theologians. Because if we love God, do we not want to know him? So listen to this theologically sound, this awesome principle that John writes in 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love. That he, talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us. That we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. A few quick observations before we get into Romans this morning. Because of the gospel, we know what love is. Because of the gospel, we know what love is. Second thing I want you to see, love is not an idea. It's not an emotional reaction. Listen, it is a truth that leads us to action. It's not just an idea. It's not just an emotion. We can't just love in word. We love in word and deed. We love in word and action because the love in us, the love that is modeled, by, uh, modeled to us in Christ, revealed to us through him, compels us to action. Last quick observation I want you to see. Love is inseparable from the character of God. See, love is an attribute, a characteristic of God, and it is inseparable from him. It is who he is. And so in this way, understand that love is defining a very characteristic of who God is. No place are we going to see this more beautifully communicated than in the back few chapters of Romans. We've been preaching through the Bible, and recently as we have, we've got to our reading to the place to where 
we are reading through the book of Romans. And in the first eight chapters of Romans, there is a great doctrinal explanation of our salvation. Of how God has revealed himself through creation and through his son to a group of people. You, me, and everyone who has lived in the family of Adam that has fallen short. Every one of us, Paul writes in Romans, are sinful. Every one of us falls short of the glory of God. And yet, in spite of our sin, in spite of us, God loved us and loved us enough to send His Son. And through faith, and faith alone, not of works, but through faith and faith alone, we have been offered adoption into the family of God. And if God loved us this much, who could ever separate us from being in Christ? See, this is the first eight chapters of Romans. It's amazing. It's it's powerful. It is the doctrinal explanation of how God has reconciled his people back to himself. And if you are in Christ, it tells your story. Chapters 9 through chapters 11 kind of recap that same story, but it does so mainly in communicating God's sovereignty in the nation of Israel and to the Gentiles. How God was in control all the way back to his promise to Abraham for this nation that would be a blessed nation because through this nation the Savior of the world, not just Israel, but the world would come. And when we begin chapter 12, which is where we're going to begin this morning, when we begin chapter 12, there begins to be a slight shift in audience, in purpose, in focus. We now shift from this doctrinal explanation, and we turn the page and we begin to be instructed in what it looks like to live in Christ, to live as an adopted son in the family of God. And so chapter 12 begins to speak to those of you who have placed saving faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the last few chapters of Romans speak to you and it teaches you how are we going to live this life. Begin with me in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're going to have an outline for us this morning. It's going to walk us through. I'm going to just be really honest. It's much more of a teaching outline than a preaching outline. I don't have like three points and a bunch of illustrations. I've got a lot of points. And what I'm hoping and my prayer has been this week is that through these observations from God's Word, and there's going to be many as we build this, through these observations that the Holy Spirit would do His work in your life. And if you haven't taken a few moments to pray to prepare yourself for worshiping through the Word, just silently where you're at, what I would challenge you to do is to pray that the Holy Spirit would take His Word and would begin to transform your mind. The first thing I want you to see is in Christ, our lives are a living sacrifice. In Christ, our lives are a living sacrifice. Our lives are not our own. That's hard for us. It's, it's just a tough reality. Our lives are not our own. 
Once we were slaves to sin, Paul wrote earlier in Romans, once we were slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness. Once you were slaves, born into the family of Adam, doomed to your sin, you couldn't do anything, you couldn't get yourself out of it, it's who you were. In Christ, you were slaves to righteousness because the righteousness of the Son of God has been given to you through Christ. And unless you think Christ is going to fail in his righteousness, then you must understand that you are now, in Christ, a slave to righteousness. It's about belonging. You belong to him, through him, in him. And so for those of us who are in Christ, we need to understand our lives have not just been set free to ourselves. We have been set free as slaves of righteousness. We have been set free into Christ. Even Jesus, when he was talking, and he was talking about the yoke, he said, give me yours and take mine. You didn't just free of a yoke. There's a responsibility. Ours is to righteousness. Our life is a living sacrifice. Second observation I want you to see, our lives are our worship. Our lives are our worship. In Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Indwells us. We become the temple. No longer is the temple a place we go. The temple is In us, it is where the Holy Spirit resides. We are a living temple. And there is no worship. Listen, there is nothing you're going to sing. There is nothing you're going to praise or shout out that is any more glorifying than the worship of us living in that Spirit. Our true worship is when we live in the Spirit of God that is indwelling us. Our bodies are our worship. Some of us come and we come on a Sunday and we sing. Listen, if that is all that we do in worship, our worship is incredibly shallow. The greatest worship we have is the overflow of living in the Spirit. And presenting our bodies as our worship. There's no greater act of worship than this. Third thing I want us to see. Our lives are transformed by a new way of thinking. In Christ, we will be different. I think this is the measuring stick a little bit for Christians, especially in America today. In Christ, we will be different. We will be. Jesus tells us the world will hate us. I'm just going to be honest. I don't know that the world really hates me. I don't even know a lot of times if I'm really that different. In Christ, we will be different. And our difference is anchored in the way we think. Our difference is anchored in our worldview. Notice, the will of God, what we just read, the will of God is discerned through the testing of our mind. This worldview, this way that we think. This doesn't negate, listen, the supernatural intervention of God, but it does bring into some question our tendency to just rely on the mysticism. You know, kind of the Bruce Almighty way of praying for God's will. Lord, give me a sign. 
And like, I'm just waiting to drive down the road and see the flashing marquee that tells me what I'm supposed to do in this moment. That can happen. I'm sure it happens. But can I tell you what I think is going to happen 99% of the time? Because it is the way that God has ordained it and set it to be. Is that through the study of His Word and His revelation, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind and you will gain wisdom. And through God's wisdom, you will be able to discern the will of the Lord. I think most of the time the reason that we hold up the marquee is probably more laziness on our end. It's probably more laziness on our end, if we're just honest. Because to get in and to really study and to rest in wisdom and to challenge our minds to be transformed is hard. It's different. It's different. Our lives are transformed by the way we think. This is a marker of one who is in Christ. He goes on in verse 4 of chapter, uh, chapter 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. In Christ, our lives are gifted. The Holy Spirit does not only indwell us, the Holy Spirit gifts us. If you are in Christ, you have a unique, special giftedness of the Lord. That's an amazing thing. Given to you by the grace of God, it's different. You're individual. Your mom was right. You are special. God has made you special. He has gifted you with an amazing gift set. God has done this. Your giftedness, by the way, is for the building up of the body. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you're going to begin to see that in verse 7. Your giftedness, watch this, isn't for you. Your giftedness isn't just so that you get a promotion at work so that you somehow do better with your leadership giftedness. Your giftedness is that you would build up the body of Christ, that you would be part of making disciples that make disciples. Gifted, individually. But second, also see that our lives are individual and one. Individual and one. Despite our individual giftedness and roles, we function as one body in unity. In Christ, listen, we don't just go move around from church to church until we find the people that are most like us. We don't just get in our life groups with all the people who are just like us who share all the same thoughts and all the same ideas and all the same preferences. See, in Christ, we are a family. Family. You know what's funny about family? When you have kids, you don't get to pick the personality of those children. Right? Those of you who have had more than one kid, you can, you can attest to that. They have different personalities. Sometimes they even surprise you, right? Watch. In Christ, you don't get to pick the personality and giftedness of the body. That is up to the grace of the Lord. Our responsibility is to live as one body. One body, unified in Christ. Something beyond our preferences. So, yes, we're individual. Yes, we're gifted. Yes, we have different roles. But we are one and one for the sake of the whole. It's an exciting thing. He goes on in verse 9, chapter 12. And we begin to see our focus of love this morning. He says in verse 9, Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. 
Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In Christ, our lives are called to be a manifestation of love. In Christ, core, foundation to what it means to live a faithful Christian life means that you will be a manifestation of love. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine. Genuine. It's translated sincere. The same Greek word that's here is translated sincere by the ESV, which is what I'm reading in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, also in James uh, 3.17. It's translated uh, uh, sincere in a lot of other versions too. But it just means that. It means honest. Let love be true. Let it be honest. The New American Standard translates it without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be true. Even the way we translate the let there kind of bugs me a little bit but the way we hear it. Because sometimes I think we hear it as a suggestion. Let love be true. I want you to know it, it's, it's a command. It's a command. I really like the way the Holman Christian Standard translates it. It says this way. Love must be without hypocrisy. It must be. If it is not, it is not love. See, that's the point. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So we're going to transition in our outline. So far we've been talking about our lives in Christ, but I want you to see something. Our lives in Christ can be summarized by a pursuit of love. It is foundation to who we are. So I want you to see a few things about love. Our love is sincere. Our love is sincere. Love cannot be faked. Listen, regardless of motive. Regardless of motive. Nowhere are we more prideful than in our relationships. To be honest and open enough to say that what I intend as love for my child may not in fact be love is a hard pill for me to swallow. That in my brokenness, that in my sin nature, that my motive of love may in fact be broken. Untrue. 
false is a hard reality for me to swallow. It's a hard reality in our culture. One of the greatest examples of that that I think we can feel all the time is in parenting because of our kids and, and how much we love them and care for them. And one of those things that I've just learned, I just try to stay away from, so don't come up and ask me afterwards, you know, is how we school our kids. And some people want to send their kids to public school and some people want to send their kids, uh, keep their kids home for homeschool and some kids want to, uh, parents want to send their uh, kids to private school. Now here's the interesting thing. Most parents in that are choosing to do it because they think it's the best decision. And if you really begin to ask them and interact with them, they don't think it's usually, usually, just the best decision for their kid. They think it's flat out the best decision. Because if they were to admit that it's just the best decision for my kid, that makes it somewhat more subjective, and I could possibly be making the wrong decision for my kid. And that as a parent is terrifying. Right? Can we just own that? I I think that. I feel that. See, when it's in our relationships, it's so hard to separate truth from motive. But here we see a clear charge that love is to be sincere. Listen, if you really want to love those around you, Here's an application. Transform your mind by the revelation of God that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you might know true love and be able to be a manifestation of that. But if we believe that love is an absolute reality, then we must understand it's beyond our motive. And as fallen, broken people, then we must understand that we cannot always just trust our heart. Scripture tells us our heart is the most wicked thing. It can't just be our motive. Third, our love is outside of personal circumstance. Our love is outside of personal circumstance. Because in Christ, our love comes from a source outside of our circumstance. We do not love just because it is a good day. We do not love just because all things go our way. We love because God is love. It is an attribute of who he is. And so, next, our love is outside of the merit of others. In Christ, our love comes from a source that is outside of the merit of others. Verse 14 says, those who persecute you. If they persecute you, they haven't earned your love. That's not merited, right? See, our love goes to those who even hate us. Our love goes out to the sinful, to the broken. Why? Because that is who God is. That is the very love He has shown us. Our love goes beyond circumstance. It goes beyond what someone does for you or how they make you feel. I also think it's neat that He goes on and He talks about those who rejoice and those who weep. Do you know sometimes the hardest people to love are the people who are just blessed in the ways you wished you were blessed? Our envy, our selfishness makes it so hard to love those people. You've tried and tried and tried to have kids, and they have four, and man, they just, every time you're on Facebook, man, it's just pictures of their kids. And they know how hard you've been trying. Sometimes it's hardest to love those who we are called to rejoice with. By the way, sometimes there are people like me who just, Man, I don't know. I have to work really hard at empathy. I'm an only child. I am incredibly self-centered. 
very kind of objective and go through life, and empathy's hard for me. You know what's really hard for me? To love enough to weep with somebody who weeps. It's hard. And I'm not talking in real-life situations that are just obviously, I mean, you lost your spouse of 50 years. I'm talking, you know, that 13-year-old girl whose boyfriend of one week broke up with her and she's devastated. I just want to be like, listen, you're not even going to remember his name. That's not very weep with those who weep in that moment. Right? I have to fight that. I have to fight some of that. Love is outside of the merit of others. Whether that means they've persecuted or that means that they are blessed. We turn the page and we go into Romans chapter 13. We'll pick up in verse 8. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For no one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, or any other commandment, listen, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Let me say it again. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. By the way, we won't come back to this. I just want to hear this list. Quarreling and jealousy, same par with drunken orgies. Listen, unity matters. Unity in the body matters. Not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In Christ, our love, listen, it is owed. It is owed. It says, owe no one anything except love. It's implied. We owe love to our family. It is owed. Listen, love is obedience. Not obedience to a command. Don't see it that, that narrow. Love is obedience to our life in Christ. It is an obligation of our sanctification. It is an obligation, listen, to be like Him. Do you see that? It's being obedient to be like Jesus. Second, our love is foundational to being a faithful Jesus follower. All the commandments, he says in verse 9, are summed up with this. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Interesting, a little rabbit real quick. If you are familiar, you, you know that the command, it goes all the way back to the Shema, that Jesus emphasizes the greatest commandment. This is linked, but you, you realize you're mis- he's missing the first one, right? Love God. What? Why doesn't he say love God? I want to tell you. Because he's talking to those who are in Christ. It is implied. The fact is, you cannot, listen, this is a bold statement, hear me. You cannot place saving faith in Jesus and not devote your love to him. These are inseparable things. Love God is foundational to what it means to be in Christ. 
to live that out means that we will love our neighbor. That we will love them. He also says love does no wrong. This goes back to this idea that love is an absolute reality connected to the very character of God. It is further evidence of this. That it goes beyond our motive. Let me give you an example. This is a, this is a kind of an easy example, but stick with me for just a moment. We believe that life comes into being at conception. What if I, in my understanding, a false understanding of who God is and how he's revealed himself to be, let's even say, you know, a lot of people believe in like an age of accountability. That's really not in the Bible listed as such. It's not a doctrine that you're going to clearly find. It may very well be that way. It may not. It, but let's imagine for just a moment that's what I believe. And I don't know when that age is, but I'm sure it's enough to understand. So when my child turns two, I murder my child. I kill my child. Not because it's easy, not because I want to, but because I believe if I'll kill my child before the age of accountability, it will ensure that my child will go to heaven. See, motive, wouldn't that seem selfless and loving? See, there's a problem with that. Love does no wrong. Love does no wrong. Because love is connected to the very character of God. It is who He is. And one of the most disgusting things, just like you would say of me if I did that very thing, you would say, Daniel, that is disgusting. You'd want me thrown in jail. You would push me aside. Listen, it is just as disgusting when we allow love, an attribute, a characteristic of God, to validate a sinful motive. It is like using God's name in vain. Take a different characteristic of God and set it in those statements that we hear. Say of holiness that holiness is what validates my homosexual relationship. Say of holiness that it's holiness that calls me to leave my spouse. It's holiness that calls me to walk out on my family. What if I said of holiness, it's holiness that calls me to lie to you, to tell you what you wanted to hear. It's holiness that calls me to sit there quietly, nodding my head in almost a silent affirmation in order to be a supportive friend instead of to correct you in your sin. See, we do that with love. And it's disgusting. The reason so is because love is anchored into an absolute reality of who God is. And God would never, never validate you leaving your spouse. He would not validate you doing wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong. And see, if we're just honest enough with ourselves, we know that in our very motives, we do wrong all the time. There needs to be a separation of the way we view love from some motive of emotion. And it needs to be represented with a deep truth of who God is. Love does no wrong. Romans 14, 
verse 13, he goes on and he begins to talk about unity and how love fits there. He says, therefore let us pass judgment on no one any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Listen to verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In Christ, our love is unifying. He said in verse 15, you no longer walk in love when you put your freedoms above others. It's true, in Christ we have all kinds of freedoms, but one of the things if you'll see, if you'll read Romans 14, is the stronger brother who recognizes his freedom is called to sacrifice his freedom for the unity of the others. It's there, it's loving. So your freedom, what's right, doesn't value, va- or validate, again, our lack of love. In Christ, our love builds, listen, true unity. True unity. We have a cultural understanding that unity means unconditional acceptance. That's not true unity. It's not. It's a lie. Throughout Scripture, we are charged as a family to admonish one another, to correct one another. This is understood as brotherly love. We understand this from a point of a child. I discipline my child. I discipline my child, not because I don't love my child, but because I love my child. This was said of God. It says God corrects or disciplines those who he loves. This is in Proverbs chapter 3. By the way, the author of Hebrews brings it back up again. It's in the New Testament too. God disciplines those he loves. In 2 Timothy 3.16, where it talks about the Word of God, it says it is profitable. And it goes through and it says for reproof and for correction and training. It goes through those It lists four. Two of them are reproof and correction. And it says for this purpose that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. If that sounds familiar, it'll sound like Ephesians chapter 4, where the gifts of the body come together, listen, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Until, listen, Here's the purpose. Here's how all these things work together. Don't miss this. Until we all attain to the unity, to the unity of the faith. See, when blinded by sin, we see truth as arrogance. We see lying to someone as gracious and kind. And we see correction as hate and unconditional acceptance as love. And listen, that is a lie. This is not what love has been defined for us in Scripture to be. Second, we see that our love is edifying. Its purpose is to build up our family, to build them up, to encourage them. We're almost done. The last section, Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, he reproaches those who reproached you. I'm sorry, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, 
that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In Christ, our love is patient. Man, is there no better definition of patience than the strong are to have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak? See, our patience, our patience as a father, as a mother, our patience as a brother, as a sister, our patience as family says that, you know what? I'm here. Regardless if you're perfect or not, I'm here. I'm present with you. I will bear with your failings. I will walk through this with you. Not accepting, but with family, brotherly admonishment that gets you back in rank, that helps get you back in step, and gets you back to a pursuit of something that matters. Next, our love is sacrificial. Our love is sacrificial. Paul says, do not please yourself. See, when I fail, listen, this is the last thing. When I fail, and I fail often in loving my neighbor as I love myself, this is probably the root of my fail. Instead of others, I see myself. That my love is focused more on me than it is to please others. To love them as Christ loved them. Our team's going to come on up and we're going to have a time of response, but I want to bring your attention again back to verse 5 through 7. I know there's chaos and there's people walking around and all that kind of stuff in your minds and everything is moving around. Give ear to the Word of God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another to live in love with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ therefore welcome one another Love one another as Christ has welcomed you, as He has loved you, for the glory of God. Church, by this we know love, that Christ loved us. Do not, do not sell yourself on an imitation, on a fake love. God has amazingly loved us who were so sinful that He would send His Son to pay the very penalty for your sin. Jesus died on a cross. He took your payment, your penalty. He took it on Himself. And He conquered the grave. He conquered death. And three days later, He rose. And He provides for us the hope of salvation that comes only through faith. That by turning to Him, you 
can be reconciled into the family of God. As Paul said in Romans 8, that you can be adopted into the family of God. Loved by a God, listen, who will love to no wrong. Church, two applications. If you have never placed saving faith in Jesus, make today the day you place love You place saving faith in Him. And if you're here and you're a believer, you are called to live your life in Christ with love, a true love, a sincere love. May God challenge our hearts to leave this place with His love that we might be a manifestation of Him everywhere we go. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it does teach us, how it does correct us. Lord, give us the wisdom to see beyond our current worldviews. Lord, give us the wisdom to see and understand love as you have defined it and as you have revealed it to be. And Father, give us the faithfulness to live it out, to take it to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors around the world. Lord, we trust you. Lord, we love you. Help us love you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you take this time, would you stand? And would you make this a time of response?